really hard song to come up after. <laughs> I have my tissue with me. Ah, the goodness of Jesus, seen this weekend, amen? Yes. Satisfied that he is all that I need. Man, I'm feeling like that this morning. I woke up feeling rested. Last night, or yesterday, I was weary all day, and then he woke me up with a, just the spirit of praise after last night. Last night was such a neat time. And I was talking with John back here and just telling him what Hume Lake means to me and how much it has impacted my spiritual life. I've been coming here since I was in fifth grade. And last night we got to pray over my daughter's sister-in-law is in sixth grade. <laughs> Do the math there. Um, her... Mother and father-in-law adopted, foster adopted two kids that have a lot of baggage. And tomorrow, she comes up here. I'm thankful for that. The goodness of Jesus, amen? Okay, got to get to myself together. Ugh. Sometimes I like to end on a high note in worship because then I don't have to get myself together in front of you guys, but... Um, it was an amazing night last night. I really loved the extended worship if you were able to be here. It was really, really just something special. And I'm thankful that we got to do that, to meet with Jesus. And so last night we left Ruth on the threshing floor and I left it with a cliffhanger because you don't know if Boaz said yes to Ruth's request. And I'm here to tell you he did. He said yes. And so we open chapter four to a courtroom drama. And I wish we had more time to get into it, but there's so much happening there that we really don't have time and space for this morning. But I want to get into what the end result of that courtroom uh, drama, it, what happens. And that is what we're going to be looking at this morning because the outcome is that Boaz takes Naomi to, or Ruth to be his wife. So let's pick up our story in Ruth 4, starting at the end of verse 13. It says, And the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. And do you realize how amazing this sentence is? Because Ruth was barren for her whole first marriage. And then all of a sudden, now the Lord grants her a baby, and not just any baby, but a male, a son. And remember in ancient Israel that this was super important. Because he would be someone that could uh, receive the inheritance. He would be someone that could preserve the family line. Someone that could provide protection for her family, for their family. He could be a redeemer. Amen? That's what God gave Ruth. And in verse 14, it says, And then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. See, these women have no idea what they're prophesying right there. Because that baby, Obed, was definitely, his name would be renowned in Israel. And she, these are probably the same women that came to her and asked her, Is that you, Naomi? These women that have, that have been at her side when she returned to Bethlehem. And now they break out in a time of praise, recounting what the Lord has done for Naomi. And it's interesting that Naomi is the main subject right now in our text because Ruth had the baby. 
But it started with Naomi and it ends with Naomi for a very specific reason. It was Naomi that turned and walked out of the promised land. It was Naomi that wanted to change her name to bitterness. It was Naomi that suffered great, great loss. It was Naomi that started to see the Lord work when Ruth met Boaz. It was her matchmaking plan after all. And now we see that the Lord wasn't just taking care of Ruth this whole time. He's been taking care of Naomi as well. And some of you guys need to hear that this morning. Blessed be the Lord. Anytime we think of our redemption, it should bring praise. Because our covenant God, who does not break his promises, and because of this, our redemption is secure. Amen? Our redemption is secure because of who it's in. And so these women wanted to remind Naomi, who not long ago wanted to change her name. They wanted her to to remind her that the hand of the Lord has been with her. And then by saying, blessed be the Lord, they're using his covenant name. And they were telling Naomi, not only does God exist, but that he's present in your life. And he has been present in your life. Naomi's life has been hard. She has been in the pain of grief for a really long time. She's been in very dark and difficult days, and yet God was present even in those places. Even in those places. And everyone in this room needs girlfriends or people in their life that will stand up with them in the hard times and celebrate with them in the good times and always point them to God. Amen? Every one of us needs that, and that's what these women are doing for Naomi. Saying, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And they're not talking about Boaz there. They're talking about the baby. And the phrasing, he has not left you, is saying that the Lord has not stopped working. In the original language, it actually says the Lord did not Sabbath. And the thing is that Naomi probably thought he had had forgotten about her. It's been a while. She's been in grief for a really long time. But this reminds us that the Lord does not Sabbath on our behalf. He doesn't stop working. He doesn't stop working. And these friends are coming there to remind her that he's always been at work on her behalf for her good, even in those excruciatingly painful times when she couldn't see it, when she wouldn't believe it. The God was still working. He works in our grief. And see, God had brought Naomi home empty. Remember this whole theme of fullness and empty is throughout the book of Ruth. But that was never his plan to keep her that way. And we need to remember that when we're in those times, those empty places, in both physical and spiritual ways, that is not God's plan to keep you there. He will meet you in those empty places. And in verse 15, these women went on to say that he shall be to you a restorer of life, a nourisher, and what that word means, a sustainer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more than seven sons, and that is thought to be at that time the perfect family, has given birth to him. And some scholars believe that this is talking about God. And some believe it's talking about the baby, and I think it could probably be both, right? Because it was God who gave them this baby. 
And this baby would do for Naomi what Sam did in my family. He brought back life. He brought back life. And that word restorer in the Hebrew means to actually return or, or to turn to. And, it, and it's saying a return to life. And in the Hebrew, it's this idea of a living soul. What did we learn? That, that soul? Is that soul? Yeah. And so a living soul. And the Hebrew word is nefesh. And it actually means that a person with desires and passions and emotions... And we see this verse in this word in Genesis 2:7 in the creation story when God had formed man out of the dust of the ground and then he's just a body until he breathes the breath of life into his nostrils and man became a living soul or a nefesh. And God right now is bringing her soul back to life. He's returning Naomi to life not in a physical sense. She wasn't physically dead. But in a spiritual and an emotional sense, those, part of, those parts of her soul that lay dead in the wake of tragedy, he is bringing back to life. They are coming back to life. And God is restoring her through this baby. He's giving her hope, a hope of a future. And this baby, they gave the name, of, to, uh, the, the name Obed. And it's funny because when you read it, it actually sounds like the women of the town gave the baby the name. And it would make sense because his name means to serve or to worship. And it seems like the women of the town have been worshiping ever since this baby has been born. But at this moment in time, when they look into the, the eyes of this newborn baby, they could not understand God's plan for him. They could not understand God's overarching plan. They didn't know that something great was going to come out of the tiny boy that lay in front of them. But the narrator lets the reader know something when he ends the book of Ruth with a genealogy. It's almost as if the whole book of Ruth comes to this, this point in time in the very last verse. It says, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. That's as far as the narrator knew to go. But see, if we go to the beginning of the New Testament, in the first book of the New Testament, the book of Matthew, the completed genealogy is there. And why do we know it's completed? Because it ends with Jesus. Amen. And that's what this story is about. This line of Jesus... This is a small story. We talked about this last night. This is a small story of redemption showing God's overarching plan of redemption, and it ends with Jesus. The New American Commentary says, The narrator of the book of Ruth could not know what implications the piety of these characters would have on generations of his own people that would come after him. If only he could have known that in the glorious providence of God, Boaz, Ruth, and Naomi would have laid the groundwork for the history of salvation that extends far beyond his own time and place. In the dark days of the judges, the foundation is laid for the line that would produce the Savior, the Messiah, the Redeemer of a lost and destitute humanity. They could never know that that's what their story was pointing to. They would not have understood it. 
The story starts out with famine and barrenness and death, and it ends with birth and new life and healing because that is the story of redemption. It is the story of redemption. And one of the main themes of Ruth's life is this idea of redemption. We talked about it a lot last night. How we see a a Gentile woman grafted into the family of God because she chose God. Shows us that God has opened up salvation to every one of us. But we have to also understand that there's a main theme for Naomi's life as well. Because she wasn't a foreigner. She wasn't an outsider. She was one of God's children from the very beginning. And yet she finds herself outside of the promised land without protection and a whole lot of heartache. And guess what? God pursued her as well. He pursued both of these women, completely different backgrounds, and he chases both of them. One of my favorite poems is called The Hound of Heaven. It talks of a man who is an addict, and he knows Jesus, and yet he's still an addict. It's something he falls into over and over again. It was written in the 1800s. And he's talking about the hound of heaven. He can't get away from the hound of heaven until finally, at the end of his life, he turns around. And it wasn't an angry God that was chasing him, but one that was beckoning him to be with him. It's an amazing story of how God pursues us. And he does that to both of these women. But as I read the book of Ruth, as we all read it, we get as the reader an advantage of a bird's eye view. And we we have to understand that with the Bible. It is a really amazing thing, and it should make us think of our own lives this way. And because we watch a story unfold and we see God's fingerprints all over it, it's an advantage that both of these women did not have at the time. They were stuck in the middle of their reality. In the middle of the tears and pain and grief, they were stuck there wondering if God saw them. In the middle of confusion, wondering if God heard them, if he had a plan and purpose for him. And I'm going to let you know, many of you have come up to me this weekend to tell me your pain. And I'm going to let you know that I have been on my knees praying for you. But God sees you where you're at. He sees you. I cannot fix your pain. No one in here can fix your pain, but Jesus can. He can meet you there. He can meet you there. And I do not take it lightly that you've come up to me and shared your story with me. But I know a Redeemer God who turns ashes into beauty. It's just we have to wait for it. And the waiting is hard because we're doing the work We're doing the work of healing grief. We're doing the work of going through tragedy. And it's not easy. We see it with these women in our story. And we have an understanding as a reader that the story is about something greater than the individuals that make up the story. And I think that that's a really important thing for us to remember as well. It it should make us to stop and think about our own story that through those trials and tribulations and the storms and pain and grief of life, the healing and restoration, the joy and praise, that's life. All of that is life. But what our life is about, it's about more than what is happening to us at that moment. God has an overarching plan that we don't know. And frankly, even if he showed us, we wouldn't understand it. We would not understand it. 
but we can choose faith. We can choose faith, choose to believe that God is present with us even in those dark times, choosing to believe that he does have an overarching plan, choosing to believe that he's sovereign, even when this world is evil, right? We look at this world and we see people all the time. It's so evil. What they choose is evil. And we're like, where is God in this? Where is God in this? He is sovereign. That's where he is. He is sovereign and he has a plan and purpose. And we don't understand it, but we can trust that he knows what he's doing. Amen? He knows what he's doing. I love what John Piper said. He said, life is not a straight line leading from one blessing to the next and finally to heaven. Life is a winding and troubled road. Switchback after switchback. And the point of biblical stories like Joseph and Job and Esther and Ruth is to help us feel in our bones, not just know in our heads, that God is for us in all of these strange turns. God is not just showing up after the trouble and cleaning up. He is plotting the course and managing the troubles with far-reaching purposes for our good and for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. I love that. It's more, it's, it's about more than us. It is. And let me add, we will not understand God's overarching plan until we see him face to face. We won't. We may be given a glimpse, just like we're given a glimpse of something in the Bible, a glimpse of an overarching plan for the nation of Israel. We've talked a lot about Ruth, a lot about this woman who was a Gentile that was grafted in. And today we're going to focus on Naomi. She was an Israelite. She was an Israelite that walked out of the promised land, and yet God still has a plan for her as well. And I find it interesting that redemption has always been God's plan. From the very beginning, from the Garden of Eden, God had a plan of redemption because he knew his people would choose sin. And so he had this plan, and he talks about redemption all throughout the Old Testament. It would make sense that the people who had studied the Old Testament for years and years and years that by the time Jesus comes on the scene, that they would understand that he was the Messiah that they were looking for, right? Because it's been written about since from Genesis to Malachi. It has been written about over and over, but they don't. They miss it. They miss their Messiah because they can't believe Jesus is what they're looking for. The nation of Israel missed their Messiah. And as I was studying for this talk, this retreat, I watched a talk by a rabbi because I wanted to know why Ruth is written or read, sorry, why Ruth is read every year on the festival of Shabbat. It's also called the Feast of Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks. And I wanted to know why is Ruth written or read every year? And so I watched this man talk about it and I was surprised on his take of the book of Ruth. Because he said the book of Ruth is a very beautiful story, but it lacks any religious content. And I sat back and I was shocked because all I see when I read the book of Ruth is spiritual content. That's all I see because all I see is the fingerprints of Jesus. And then my heart sank when I said, when I realized that, because that's the part he's missing. He's missing Jesus. And without Jesus, this book It really is just a beautiful story about a family. Without Jesus, this book doesn't have the same meaning. And see, that is the part 
that Israel is blind to, that the Jews are blind to. But the Bible is very clear that God is not done with Israel. Amen? He is not done with Israel. She may be spiritually barren right now, but God is a covenant-keeping God. And the Bible talks of a time when the eyes of the Jewish people will be opened and they will recognize Jesus as their Messiah and there will be a great harvest just like there is right now in the time of the Gentiles. There is a great harvest But there will be a great harvest one day of the Jewish people, and they will finally be able to see this book for what it is truly about, the story of redemption. Amen? But as it stands now, the book of Ruth that the rabbi believes has no religious content is read by the Jews every year on the Feast of Pentecost. And that is a one-day festival that is celebrated 50 days after Passover. It's tied to Passover for a very specific reason. It's actually thought to be an anticipatory feast because it has a countdown, 50 days from Passover. And and the days between Passover and Pentecost, the Jews were to live in anticipation of the harvest, the harvest that God was going to give them. And on this day of Pentecost, the Jews would then come and offer God an offering of their first fruits, that first of their harvest. Megan talked about it last night. The very best of their harvest. And God commanded them to give it to them. So why would he do that? Why would he do that? Well, remember the feast is tied to Passover. What does Passover represent? Them coming out of slavery of Egypt. That's what that's tied to. They had 400 years of slavery. What was their identity? A slave. They were a slave. And what would slaves do when they had their first harvest? Hoard it. Why? Because they've never had it before. And if they're anything like me, anytime I get overwhelmed or or I'm at capacity and then I have a little time to myself, what do I do? I hoard it. If anytime I'm tight with money and I get a little bit of money, what do I do? I hoard it. It is our tendency, our tendency. But God says, no, I want you to give it back to me. And in the book, Christ in the Feast of Pentecost, it says, slaves had no crops and little to give by way of material offerings. And as we are to be servants of God rather than slaves of Pharaoh, the blessings and responsibilities connected with the agricultural cycle might also stimulate spiritual growth. God wasn't asking them for their first fruits because he needed it. He was asking for it because it would do something for them. It would make them understand that he is their provider. He is their provider. He has all the, the, the harvest he needs. But he wanted them to understand that he would continue to provide. It was a, a, faith, a faith move. It helped them to trust him. They acknowledged that everything they had belonged to the Lord. That's what he wanted for them. And remember that the land was just... Uh, And remember, the land was God's. Remember, he was sovereign over it. They were just stewards of it. And by giving him their first fruits, they are trusting God to bring in their full harvest. Because he just wants the first fruits, and then they have to trust him to bring in the rest. Do you know what else happened on the Feast of Pentecost? 50 days after Jesus dies as our Passover lamb, And resurrected three days later, 
God sent his Holy Spirit on the church. He sends his Holy Spirit. In the the book of Acts, the disciples are in this upper room, more than likely to to celebrate this feast. And it was one of three main Jewish feasts that, that included a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. That's why there's so many people in Jerusalem that day. And, and they're, they're there, and God sends their, his Holy Spirit. And I love this because this was a holiday to celebrate the harvest. And actually, in today's age, the Jewish people use Pentecost to celebrate the giving of the Torah because they've gone away from the agricultural cycle. And, but at this point, how God used it was to celebrate the harvest. And isn't it interesting that on the very day that God set up a feast for the Jews to celebrate the harvest, God sent his Holy Spirit. And it goes a little step further. When he's telling them, give me your first fruit so that you will trust me for the harvest yet to come, guess what God does for all of us? He gives us his first fruits. He gives us his first fruits, the Spirit. That is a guarantee of the harvest yet to come. Amen? That is what God does. I love studying the Old Testament and seeing how Jesus fulfills it. Because every single feast that the Jewish, the Jewish people celebrate, guess what? It is fulfilled in Jesus. Amen? It is fulfilled in Jesus. And I love that. God is not done with Israel. They may be blind to what he has given them, but he is a a promise-keeping God. And that message of redemption, he keeps it in front of them every single year on this Feast of Pentecost as they read the book of Ruth. He is relentlessly pursuing them. And in the book of Ruth, we are not only given a picture of Israel, but a picture of what God intended redemption to be. See, God never intended to bring Israel as his people to form a pure race. That was never his intention. He wanted salvation to be open to everyone. He wanted redemption to every, for everyone. Regardless of race, gender, heritage, social status, it didn't matter. And so in a male-dominated society, he uses a woman to show his plan of salvation. He takes an outsider from a questionable lineage and brings her into his family. And from a barren woman, he brings life that was as good as dead. And from this line, he would bring his Messiah. From his line, he would bring his Messiah. This shows that God wants everyone to come to him. And as I was thinking about this message of redemption, I was just recently reminded of my own full circle moment. I was in seventh grade, and I came to Hume Lake Summer Camp. Like I said, I've been coming here since I was in fifth grade, and I would continue to come here till my, freshman, or till my senior year in high school. Hume Lake played a great part in my spiritual life. And, and I, for some reason, this seventh grade year stands out in my mind, and not because of anything great that happened, but rather because of my own failure, or that's at least how my mind perceived it when I was young. And see, we had not been here for even a whole day. We came on a bus with my church, and if you think that ride is scary in a car, you take a store bus and you come up here. It doesn't even look like it fits on the road. And so we came up here on a bus. 
My sister is in eighth grade. She was my older sister, or she still is my older sister. <laughs> She's in eighth grade. She's 14 months older than me, and she brings her friend to camp that year. And I'm going to just tell you, those two were cool, and they knew it, right? And so my mom, who is sitting right down here, we can all blame her for this, decided, thought that it would be a good idea when I was in sixth grade to cut my hair off and give me a crown perm. It was not a good look. So I was like at the lowest rung of the cool ladder, right? And, but I had started growing out. I started growing out a little bit, and they were allowing me to hang out with them. I was so excited. I was so excited. But my sister's friend was not a believer. She did not at all believe in Jesus. Her family was pretty against Jesus, in fact. So knowing now what I know, it's pretty miraculous that her parents even allowed her to go. And as I said, we were in conversation, and I can picture the exact place we were. And in the spring, I actually made a walk up to Meadow Ranch just to check it out, to remind myself of this full circle moment. And we're talking about Jesus. Right off the bat, right off the bus. And my, my sister's friend says, I don't believe in any of that. And I'm never going to. And I've always had this need in me to speak truth, right? It, it just kind of bubbles out of me. And, and it's gotten me into a whole lot of trouble. I'm just going to tell you that, a whole lot of trouble. Because I didn't know for a really long time that if you have that need to speak truth, you better do it in love, right? Otherwise, keep your mouth shut. God has taught me that lesson over and over again. If you can't do it in love, don't do it. Don't do it. And since I didn't learn this lesson until much later, I went into a sermon on hellfire and brimstone that would make a grown man cry. And she looked at me with wide eyes, and she wasn't turning to Jesus at that point. In fact, she turned and ran to the payphone. And that's, those were set up if you ever wanted, yeah, the inclination to call home, you could. And she had the inclination to call home. And I wasn't really worried about it at the time, because if I were to call my mom on the very hour that I went to camp and said, come get me, she would have said, see you at the end of the week. But that's not what her parents did. See, her parents were worried about her even being up here in the first place. So when they got that call, they got into the car right away. They made that four-hour drive up the mountain, and they came and got their daughter the very day that she came to camp. They didn't give it a second thought. And really, the thing that has always hurt my heart is that she never once got to hear a speaker she never once sat in a worship service. She never once sat in a cabin that was talking about what they'd learned. She didn't get any of that. She was never given that opportunity. And that's always bothered me, and I've always beaten myself up for it. Why didn't you keep your mouth shut? I thought that a lot throughout the years. And, and now I'm an adult and I realize that God is bigger than my failed attempt at evangelism and, and that he is not reliant in any way, shape, or form on, on me for people coming to know him. Amen? He is not. And I also understand in the grand scheme of life, this was a very, very small problem, but this interaction has always stayed with me. It, it kind of was significant to me for some reason. It bothered me to my core 
because I think it was the first time I realized that my life and my words are saying something about my God, and I need to be careful what they are. I need to be careful what they are. And as I was writing this talk, I'm, I'm in my office. I have a whiteboard. I was writing out the whole storyboard of Ruth. And so when you sit back and you look at that, and it's just amazing to see the story of redemption playing out as plain as day. And, and it was right then that the Lord just put on my heart, this is a full circle moment. Because 35 years later, you're going to stand on a stage and you're going to preach redemption, but this time in love, in love with me. And I'm just so thankful that God gives us second chances, amen, a chance to do it over, a chance to redeem what we did wrong, that we did wrong. I love that about God. And I just want you to understand that God has been doing some work this weekend. He has started a great work. And I love Hume for that reason. It's a place for us to change our focus, to get a different perspective, to remind ourselves that we're seen. Do you know you're seen? I want you to understand and go away from here knowing that you're seen by Elroy, the God who sees. And as we go down this mountain... That work will continue if we let it. That work that God starts here, he will continue. He is faithful to do that. And maybe when you go down this mountain today and you get home, you, there are some things that you need to do differently. There's a full circle moment for you, to, a chance for you to do things over. I want to tell you, take it. Take it. There's such blessing in it. And remember that God is working on your behalf even when you can't see him. And maybe you need to go down this mountain and choose to look beyond your circumstances at what God is doing. And I'm reminding you, write down your five things. Write them down. Change your perspective. It's not going to fix your circumstances, but it really, really helps us to have eyes to see what God is up to. Because we can only see this step in front of us. It, it really, really helps. It's that tool that helps ward against bitterness. And maybe when you get home, you need to physically get up and move back to the promised land. Maybe there are some physical things that you need to do, that you've made a commitment here to come back to him, and at, when you get down this mountain, you need to physically take action. I'm encouraging you to do that. So however the Lord has led you this weekend... Remember to not pick up what you have laid at his feet, and if you do, continually surrender it over and over again. He is for you. And his plan will not, we will not understand until we see him face to face. But until then, let's be women that trust him. Let's be women that boldly go into the world and share the story of a loving God that desperately wants to redeem his people. We serve a pursuant God. And as I was coming up here this weekend, I had a friend of mine who was praying over me, and these were the verses she was praying over me, and I want to pray them over you as we close. It says, now may the God of peace who brought you up from the dead, our Lord Jesus, 
the great shepherd of the sheep and ratified an eternal covenant with his blood, may he equip you with all you need for doing his will. May he produce in you through the power of Jesus Christ every good thing that is pleasing to him, all glory to him forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys.